at chapter 2, we're up to uh, page 928. And just as you're finding that, let me flag just a couple of other things in addition to, uh, to what uh, Pete mentioned earlier. Th- these are a couple of things about, in preparation for Christmas, not about us, but about opportunities to uh, serve others. The first is, uh, I commend to you this uh, Toys and Tucker project that we're part of each year. Uh, we've got about two more weeks uh, to collect both toys and tucker. And the goal of that is churches all around Sydney and beyond are collecting things that will be bundled up as gifts for those uh, who go uh, without at Christmas. It's a simple but really important opportunity for us to be part of that with churches all around Sydney. If you'd like to do that, you'll see a Christmas tree out in the foyer. That's where to put things over these next few weeks. And if you're wondering what to bring, uh, you'll find on the information table a little flyer like this and it will guide you as to what is most helpful uh, to provide Uh, for uh, toys or gifts. So please do grab one of those. Uh, The other one is, and we mentioned this last week, is uh, one of our mission partners, um, Gus and Sarah Cameron in Fairfield. They're building up on the other side of Christmas to a really important event in their calendar, and that is their summer youth camp. And we have opportunity to partner with them in that, support them in a really, again, simple but important way. Uh, What they're looking for from us is uh, for us to supply a show bag to every uh, youth who goes on the camp as a way to welcome them and make them feel uh, a part of things straight away on the camp. Uh, so we're looking to raise funds to uh, uh, pay for the show bags for each of the campers. And beyond that, there'll be a number of youth who come on the camp who don't have a Bible themselves. They want to put one in their hand, have that as a gift for them uh, to take with them. So I commend that to you. The, the final thing, if we can manage it, they're our first two targets. If we reach that target, and I think we should reach that target well before Christmas. The other thing that would be brilliant to do is to support youth who uh, may not otherwise financially be able to go on the camp, to have a pool of funds uh, that the Camerons and the church there at Fairfield can uh, use to support and encourage youth to come along. So all you need to do is to grab one of these flyers, if you're keen to be part of that, again on the information table, and you'll see how you can uh, uh, contribute in any of those ways that I've just described. Right, well, let's uh, turn to Malachi uh, chapter 2, page 928, and hopefully inside uh, your uh, service sheet is an outline of uh, where we're heading. I say turn to Malachi chapter 2, but let me start with Isaiah 40. Hear these words from Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each name, each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Uh, the big call uh, from the book of Malachi that we're working our way through together, and I think the call of uh, the whole of the scriptures is this, to see and declare that our God is great. Uh, Great is the Lord was the declaration in uh, Malachi chapter 1. That's what we're meant to see. The more we hear his word, we see that he is glorious. Glorious in his faithfulness, in his justice. uh, Glorious in his strength to follow through on his promises. uh, Glorious in his sacrifice for us, in his patience with us, in his persevering love, in his uh, unending grace. He is glorious. And life is about glorifying him and enjoying him forever. The more we see that, the more we enjoy it. 
Uh, you were made as a creature made in his image to be utterly satisfied in him and his glorious nature uh, because he is glorious. Uh, our, he is worth our whole heart, our whole life. That's the testimony of the scriptures. But as we've seen in uh, the book of Malachi, Malachi has spoken to God's people at a time when they have completely lost sight of that. Uh, over time, uh, because of their circumstances, which were difficult back in the promised land, uh, God's glory, his nature, had completely slipped from their view. Instead, they were a people who, uh, in terms of their response to God, were indifferent and distracted and, well, to be honest, bored. Uh, they had, you remember uh, chapter 1, verse 6 last week, uh, they had forgotten that God is their father that he loves them like a father. They had forgotten how dependent they were on him because he is their father. And not only had they forgotten he was their father, he was their father, they had forgotten that he is king, that he reigns, that absolutely every detail of their lives uh, as they go about their, their, their lives throughout the week, every detail is governed and ruled by him. He is the Lord Almighty. As we saw last week, despite this, uh, they lost sight of his glory. And I think the other thing that we saw last week is how easily we too can do the same thing. Now, you remember this quote from David Wells. I think this sums us up well. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become to us unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. Those who claim belief in God may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. Uh, that is, even though, uh, remember, we read this last week and we read it again this morning, uh, Romans 12 says, because of his greatness, because of his great mercy, uh, it actually demands a worship of life, soul, all, all of it. And yet we end up responding with half-hearts and partial lives. We end up offering God the, the scraps left over from, well, our commitment to other great causes that have caught our eye. Malachi 1, last week, I'm sure you felt this if you were here, is a stinging rebuke to half-hearted people. And even more so when, when you see God's response. Do you remember it in uh, verse 10 of chapter 1? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And so the question we finished with last week is, what hope is there for the half-hearted people like us? Uh, we saw last week that the healthy response to the rebuke of uh, chapter 1 is, is to reach a point where we say, I'm not sure I can worship the way I'm called to here. I know I fall massively short of this, but, but I, I can't do it. And we saw that as we go along in Malachi, we'll see that the only hope for the half-hearted people like us is the one that Malachi promises will come to rescue us. The, the one that the, the chapter 3 calls the messenger of his covenant, or, or another way of putting that, the word of his promise, the Lord Jesus. Our only hope is there would come one who would take our place in our half-heartedness. Where we are half-hearted, he would be wholeheartedly obedient. 
where we reject, uh, where God rejects us for just offering him his, uh, our scraps, uh, his son would offer him what his father would be pleased with. Remember that as Jesus is baptised, there he is declaring of his son, this is my son, I love him and I'm well pleased with him. That's the one who stands in our place. But how amazing is this? Because he is pleased with his son, we by, uh, who have faith in his son, we by faith can, can also please him, even in our half-heartedness. Uh, we are those who, by faith in the Lord Jesus, are actually freed from the fear of condemnation before God and free to actually please him. Now listen to how uh, Ephesians chapter 2 puts that. Uh, famous verses from Ephesians 2, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're free because of his work. But then it goes on to say this in Ephesians 2, it says, We now are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. We can please him. We are, if you like, uh, by the Lord Jesus, saved for our original purpose, glorifying God and delighting in him forever. But the obvious question I find myself asking as I see that purpose that I now have as one saved in Jesus is, how can I do that? I'm still the same me. I'm still half-hearted. I'm still compromised. I'm still distracted. Well, that's what's so wonderful about our hope in the Lord Jesus. Our hope is not just that he will take our place. Our hope is also that the word of the gospel of Jesus actually has power to change our hearts. I wonder if uh, you saw that as we read Romans 12 together and if you've got your Bible open there, flick forward to uh, page 1100 and you'll see Romans 12 there and there's really two parts to it. Last week we zoomed in on uh, Romans 12 verse 1 with this call to wholehearted worship but wonderfully in verse 2 we see the means of being able to do that. It is by this word that can transform our hearts, change our hearts. That's the call, let this word transform you transforming us into the likeness of the one who stands in our place. No, no, we won't fully be like him until we see him. That's what 1 John tells us. But while we wait, and while we wait for that day when we will see him and we will be like him, uh, this word of grace actually has power not just to carry us, but to change us. The Bible says that the more you fill your mind and heart with this word, the more it will change your half-heart. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 says, the more we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God and his greatness, the more, and this is what it says, we can live a life worthy of the Lord. The more we can please him in every way. That's the opportunity that is before us. That's our hope, having this word change us. But I do want to say, given that I'm half-hearted and you are half-hearted, if we're going to do that, that's not a solo project, that's a community project. Uh, we've just begun the building project out there. Well, sort of begun. Uh, just sort, yeah. Uh, but this is a far more important project and it will take longer. It will take all our lives and it will take us together. It is a community project. The key for changed hearts is not to go it alone but to be about this together. Uh, one of my favourite uh, uh, theologians of the past is a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I think he nailed this idea perfectly. This is what he said of our need. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. 
He needs his brother as a bearer of the divine word of salvation because the Christ in his own heart is so often weak. But the Christ in his brother's heart and the word on his brother's lips is certain and sure. Now we need each other. Our hope for change, if we are to change in heart and mind, is the brothers and sisters around you. And I want us to see that from Malachi 2. I want us to see what that role would look like if we see that as our task together. So let's look at that. You can see it on your outline there. Really, this is the question we have uh, before us this morning. What your brother and sister need from you in this church? Uh, the previous passage we saw, 1, 6 to 14, we saw the Lord's rebuke and it was to the people but especially to the priests, those who were uh, responsible for leading the people in this. Uh, between the people and the priests, they had completely failed and lost sight of God's glory. And so, as we turn to chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, uh, the Lord's rebuke zeroes in on the priests who should have known better Uh, Part of their job was to listen to God's word and then to teach it to the people so they would lead the people to live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. But they'd failed completely. Now the question is, uh, if that's the job of the priest, they were part of the tribe of Levi, what's that got to do with us? Uh, How is that relevant to us? I mean, are there any priests amongst us uh, this morning? Uh, The simple answer in one sense is no. No. Uh, Malachi spoke uh, into a context where there was an official order of priests. They were from the tribe of Levi and they were set aside for this task of leading the people in that way. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is now no official priesthood. There's no need for it. And uh, the, the reason is, well, it's wonderful. Now listen to this from Hebrews 7. Here's why there's no priests anymore. Now there have been many priests But since death prevented them from continuing in their office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see why we don't need priests here? We have one and he is permanently in place. Jesus replaces the Old Testament priesthood perfectly because he lives forever and because his sacrifice was once and for all. Now there's no official priesthood amongst us this side of the cross because there's no need, it's finished. Even now he stands in your place. Even now in our half-heartedness he's interceding for you. But while the New Testament does away with this sort of sacrificial role of the priesthood because Jesus is doing that for us, it takes the concept of priesthood, of serving the people and it applies it not to some but actually to all of us. Uh, Listen to how Revelation 1 uh, explains that. It says this, To him who loves us, speaking of Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be priests to serve God. The New Testament concept of priesthood is not to some but to all believers. Every single one of us here is a priest. (laughs) But if we are all priests, And that's our task here. What's our job, given that the the sacrificial task is over? Jesus has finished that. Are there any duties from the the Old Testament priesthood that sort of carry over to us now? Well, the short but important answer is yes. Uh, If you look at Malachi 2, verses 6 and 7, you'll see there that the, the priests were called to teach the people God's word. 
that, that remains our job. Uh, they were to have it on their lips as people came to them, as they interacted with people. This word was to be spoken by them to others, to lead them on. Uh, the goal was uh, that through that they would prepare one another to worship the Lord with all their lives, and that's our job. Malachi 2 uh, remains crucial for us because that's your job for those around you. So let's look at it together. And as we do, I, I want you to imagine something, and it shouldn't be too hard to imagine because you did it just a few moments ago. Imagine you've just walked through the doors of St Andrews and you found your name tag uh, amongst the name tags and, uh, and you walk in here and you sit in, well, the pew that you always sit in and uh, you're sitting there. What's on your mind? What's going through your mind? Could be all sorts of things. You might be thinking, wow, why is the music so loud this morning? Or maybe you're thinking, why is it such an effort to get here? Or maybe you're thinking, how come I'm on the roster again? Or I wonder if I am on the roster and I've forgotten. <laughs> or maybe you, you arrive just as the kids head out and you're thinking, I wonder when this service actually starts. Is it 5 to 10 or 10? I forget. <laughs> or imagine this, imagine not church, imagine you've just, uh, you've just driven in your car to your small group, you've got out of the car, you've knocked on the door, what's in your mind? Is it, I hope I can stay awake this week. I think they spotted me nodding off in prayer last week. Or maybe it says, I hope Fred doesn't derail discussion again like he does most weeks with one of his hobby horses. If he does, I may literally throw the Bible at him. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, as you walk into small group this week or as you walk into church here, what do you think your brother or sister needs from you? What do they need from you? Now, I appreciate that's a really weird question to ask because we as Western Christians are so individual in the way we approach life and the Christian life. But that's not how God thinks. We are his family and Galatians 6 says your job is to carry each other. So if that's our job, uh, how, what, what does your brother need from you, your sister need from you in this moment? Well, here's four things from our passage they need from you. The first is this, they need you to set your heart to honour God when we're together. If we are going to grow as a church in wholehearted worship, it it actually starts with each one of us setting our heart to that goal. What those around you need most of all is to see that that's your heart's goal. You may be miles from the goal, but that's your goal. They need to see you aiming for that purpose. In Malachi 2, the Lord's indictment of the priests is that they were failing to do that. You see there, verse 2, you have not set your heart to honour me. As the people gathered at the temple, uh, there was amongst the priests no concern for God's glory. It wasn't even in their minds. There was no heart in the task that they had before them and no passion to see the people around them growing to honour God more. Let me ask you this. As you gather here on a Sunday, can those around you see that your heart is in it? I know there's lots going on for you, so it's hard to be all in, isn't it? But uh, the reality is that's true for everyone around you. I've not yet met a non-busy person here. It's hard to be all in. On the way here, do you pray that your heart will be set to honour God when you're with his people? I mean, they might see it uh, uh, when you show up early or you you stay late to encourage others to, to glorify God in the details of their lives. They might see it when you, when you sing with all your heart. You sing like you mean it. 
using the songs to set your heart and perhaps those around you to honour God. I wonder if you view our singing that way as as an act of worship that encourages others to do the same. Uh, Listen to this from John Piper. I think it's brilliant. He says, The realities of God and Christ, of creation and salvation, of heaven and hell, are so great that they demand more than discussion. They demand poetry and song and music. Singing is the Christian's way of saying God is so great that thinking will not suffice, uh, mere thinking will not suffice. There, there must be deep feeling. Talking will not suffice. There must be singing. You see the power to stir another's heart by you singing with or your heart. I remember years ago uh, visiting uh, an old Christian uh, in, in the UK and uh, he'd moved into a, a, a nursing home and uh, he had no one really left in his family and I went to visit him and as I'm looking for his room, it was a, a place I'd never been before, eventually I'm going down the hall to, to where he is and this is the most uh, horrible nursing home I think I've ever been in. Uh, uh, Spartan would be to describe it. There was in his room a bed and that's it. Uh, and as I come near towards his room, I hear singing. And there he is lying in this bed and he's singing old hymns that he knows. And uh, I go in there and slightly awkward, not showing what to do. Do I let him keep singing? Do I stand outside? And he sees me uh, poking my head around the corner and he invites me in and then he starts to ask me to sing with him. And so for the next half hour we sang hymns. I didn't know many of the words, but I mumbled along. But I tell you what, when I left that room... I left ready to take any hill, so stirred by his passion for the Lord, even in his circumstance. Uh, Do you set your heart to honour God, to stir others? They might see it in your prayer for each other. Maybe you could stay afterwards and see someone who value you, praying with them, that we would do this this week. This is the first thing your brother needs, your sister needs. They need you to set your heart to honour God. Here's the second thing they need. They need you to listen, really listen to God. The priests in Malachi's time had lost sight of God's honour because, do you see it there, verse 2, they'd stopped listening. Uh, What your brother and sister needs from you most in your priestly ministry towards them, before you speak into their life, before you presume to have something to say, is to be one who has listened well to God. Now listen to this from Ecclesiastes 5. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. Don't be quick with your mouth to utter anything before God or others. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Listen, says God. Listen to this word that made heaven and earth. Listen to the word that can raise the dead. Listen to a word that can change absolutely everything. But how often that word is drowned out by other words, other influences in our lives. And so when we come to church, we are filled with those other words. They're shaping us and those around us. Your brother and sister has that experience too. And what they need from you before you dare speak into their life is to be one who listens to God. Now Sunday is incredibly precious, I think. A rare moment of quiet. You think about what your week is like. <laughs> you think about these moments of quiet, listening to God together. Where what your brother and sister needs from you in those moments is to really listen. 
It's a bit like, a, you know, the experience of being at the airport, perhaps at an airport you're unfamiliar with and, and you're not sure about the details of your onward journey, the next flight, and you, you crane your ear, you desperately listen over the little tannoy or whatever it is for the details of the onward journey. You, you want every bit of information. Come here like that. Come with no distracted thoughts. Listen to your God speak a word that can guide you on that onward journey and those around you. Here's the third thing we need from each other. Uh, we need to be those who faithfully, that is impartially, speak that word to each other. It's what your brother needs from you, a word that, well, uh, 1 Corinthians says, can strengthen them or comfort them or encourage them. A, a word that 2 Timothy 3 says can, can teach or rebuke or correct or train them. A word that leads onwards to a life that honours God. But instead, again, the priests of Malachi's day spoke a word that we're told there is partial. They removed any cost, any challenge from the word. And instead they confirmed half hearts. You see there verse 9? You have not followed my ways, but I've shown partiality on matters of my word. As Israel drifted further and further from the Lord's way, they spoke a word of comfort, not correction of reassurance rather than rebuke. And I think the same challenge is there for us as we, as we speak to each other. We, we can end up speaking words that ask very little of each other. Words that confirm and comfort half hearts because we know we're like that and it might be just easier if we all stay like that. But the priest's job, you see there in verse 7, the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is a messenger of the Lord Almighty and people will seek instruction from his mouth. What people need from your mouth is true words from God. The key task of the priest was to teach the people all the statutes of the law and then apply it to the details of their lives. That's our job. To speak this forever word, to lead each other onward. I reckon if we want to be a church that increasingly glorifies God, not just in this hour or so together, but throughout the week, we need to be those who are prepared to faithfully speak this word to each other. And one final thing that those around you need from you, and that's this, they need you to faithfully walk with the Lord. You see the pattern? Not just listen, not just speak, but live it. You see there, verse 6, to be those who walk with the Lord. In Malachi, again, the accusation against the priests in uh, verse 8 and again verse 9 is that they were turning away and not following the Lord's ways. Uh, they, they're walking further and further apart. The gulf between what they said and how they lived it was just wider and wider. But what your brother and sister needs from you, in the words of James, not merely to listen to the word but to do what it says. I wonder if you know the incredible power of having the Christian walk modelled to you. Have you experienced that? Perhaps an older Christian, whether it's here or uh, in another church, perhaps it's someone in your family that you've seen walking with the Lord and that has encouraged and inspired your walk. And of course, uh, their walk is imperfect because they have a half-heart too, but it's incredibly encouraging, isn't it, to see it? I remember... Uh, when we first moved to the UK as a, as a very young family with two young kids and, well, another two on the way over the coming years, uh, again and again, Liz and I found our hearts stirred by seeing families a little further along the way 
living distinctly in a way that honoured Christ. It shaped all sorts of things for them. It shaped the way they were hospitable with their homes. It, it shaped their decisions regarding their children. It shaped their ministry choices. And we got to see that. And I see that starting to happen here and we need it more and more. We need the older Christians here to lead the younger ones. And we need the younger ones to lead the older ones in this walk. Your brother and sister needs you to walk faithfully. Well, let's wrap this up. We know we are so easily and so constantly half-hearted and yet how good is this? as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper together in just a moment, we stand, even with our half-hearts, completely confident before God because we know there's one who stands in our place and his blood is enough. And we know that he now pleads our case and his voice is always heard. How precious our high priest, the Lord Jesus, is who knows our weak hearts and yet was wholehearted for us who in the words of Hebrews 4, as we fail, he offers gracious, timely help again and again. He offers forgiveness. And when our hearts long for change, he offers a word that has power to bring it. And in his grace, he surrounds you with a priesthood of believers and how we need each other. How your brothers and sisters here need you to set your heart to honour his name, to listen with all your heart, to speak faithfully to them and to live faithfully before them. Can you do that for your brothers and sisters? And yes, they know you're weak, but they know the one who stands in your place and they, they know the one who is changing you into his likeness. Well, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know us through and through. You know our hearts and your Son knows our hearts. Those precious words in Hebrews 4 where he sympathises with our weakness and yet he was without sin. We have one who stands before you in our defence and we have one who offers gracious, timely help to bring change to our hearts. And so, Father, we long to be a church with changing hearts. We pray that you would do this for your glory's sake. Amen.